I have a an epic to tell. Oh yeah, an epic an epic tale. Yeah, struggle of good versus evil. Oh yeah, involves the Catholic Church. Our very own Odysseus. <laughs> <laughs> My wife last week went through the final portion of the conversion, so she's like officially Jewish now. But the very last step. And that's the one that I've sort of taken on myself is to contact the church and get her actually removed from their tax records. And they make it as hard as possible to do mm-hmm. that. So I had to contact the diocese of, and I talked to the secretary and I was as polite as I could be. I was like, Hey, so my wife today stopped being Catholic. Uh, could you please point me in the direction of where to send the letter and the form to fill out to get her off of your role? to get her defected officially from the church. So I left the message on the chancellor's phone and I waited a couple days, didn't hear anything back. And so I wrote them this email. So it says, uh, hello, Mr. Left a message on your machine a couple days ago at the direction of your secretary. I'm requesting to be informed on what information and where to send documents to have my wife formally defected from the church. She became a Jew on August 17th, 2023, of 30th, 5783, under the supervision of a Beit Din, under the authority of the Rabbinical Assembly. We have documentation to this effect. You put you in contact with Rabbi for sponsoring Rabbi, if that's necessary. Became baptized in the church in late 1996, we believe December 15th, at Catholic Church in Please let us know what additional information you need to confirm her file and record her defection. So after a good few days, he got back to me. Dear Levi, thank you for this email, as well as your voicemail from last week. As a Catholic, I have a great respect for my Jewish brethren. But of course, I'm sorry to hear that your wife is elected to depart from her Catholic faith. The simple answer to your question is that she can send a written hard copy letter to the Bishop of stating her intention and reasons for renunciation of her faith in Jesus Christ and the teaching of the Catholic Church. <laughs> Obviously, we don't have a form for people to do this, as it's not something we encourage. The opposite, actually. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know this, but told me they had a form from 2010 to like 2012, but they had to take it down because so many people were filling it out and sending it in. Mm. But he continued, because you are using the correct terminology, it seems like you've done your homework. I'll make a few more comments if you're interested. Former departure, defection from the Catholic faith, has very limited effects. From a mystical or moral standpoint, the church will still consider her to be a baptized Catholic, even after her defection. We will always hope for her return. Like the fucking seals or the CIA, like once you're in, you are never out. Or like the mob, dude, it's like all the worst things. <laughs> yeah, you can't get out. Nothing you do. Your soul belongs to us still. As a canon lawyer, I'd be remiss if I didn't put out that this action may also carry with it certain canonical judicial penalties in the law of the Catholic Church. Assuming that becoming a Jew involves renunciating of the Catholic faith, and she does make a formal defection, she could also be fulfilling the criteria according to Canon 1364 of the Code of the Canon Law. It reads in part, An apostate from the faith, a heretic, or a schismatic incurs a latte siente excommunication. I'll up the Inquisition. Apostasy is defined as the complete repudiation of, of the Christian faith. So her formal act of defection, in addition to being a grave sin, i.e. going to hell, would most likely incur the automatic penalty of excommunication. 
which means that she would be thereafter barred from all reception of the sacraments and active participation in them. Please note that excommunication is not permanent. It could be lifted if she were to return to her faith by approaching any priest. I appreciate the respectful tone of your voicemail and email, and I am hoping to reciprocate. I hope she does not take offense at this. I am merely stating the law of the church. While I understand that all this may not trouble her or you, she has a right to know. <laughs> if you have any further question about this rather complex issue, please do not hesitate to reach out. Sincerely in Christ. Dude, he's been, he's been waiting to flex that knowledge for a long time. Mm-hmm. He's going to tell you whether you're interested or not. And unfortunately, he's flexing on a guy that, at the very least, I know way more about Catholicism than he does about Judaism. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, hello. Oh, no. I also have respect for the church. My brother-in-law is studying to be a priest. My in-laws are all devout Catholics. And my aunts, uncles, and cousins on my mother's side are all, by baptism, Catholics. The act of conversion, like that of defection from the church, is not taken lightly by the Hebrews, nor, to be blunt, is it encouraged? Began the process over a year ago, underwent a rigorous education, numerous meetings, writing exercises, supervised practices, and finally the trial of a bait dean. This last step is rather small in the scheme of the whole process to me. As the son and husband of a quote, apostate, I appreciate you taking the time to explain the church's position. Although that may sound glib, I come from a religious tradition whereby disagreements over interpretation are actually encouraged. As the old joke goes, two Jews, three opinions. We could not possibly take offense because what you describe as a, quote, grave sin is to us only one interpretation. To clarify our interest in having the defection processed, we understand the church does not consider a mystical or moral difference in having the defection recorded. But the act of communicating honestly does have a mystical and moral element in our religion. The Torah asks us to, quote, distance yourself from words of falsehood, Exodus 23.7. To us, these records, as they currently exist, reflect a falsehood we can remedy without harm. To my earlier statement, we are aware the story of Jacob contains the execution of many falsehoods. So are the two complex opinions which rest comfortably within these Jews. I don't expect you to agree with us. In fact, I expect the opposite. But I thank you for helping us fulfill our faith. Best, Levi. <laughs> like, wh- why are you telling me I'm going to hell? Like, yeah. I don't believe in hell. Do you not know the first thing about Judaism? Like, that's such an empty threat. <laughs> yeah, like, if I'm interpreting his message correctly, he's saying, like, we both welcome you and consider you, your wife, a part of our religion still, no matter what she does. Uh, like, literally cannot choose for herself to get out. But then also, if she does make that choice, she's then just by default excommunicated. Sorry, nothing we can do about that. That's just the rules. Totally out of my hands. Um, She also is excommunicated and may go to hell. Like That is like perfect Catholic dogma where it makes no fucking sense. It's very obviously made up and it's totally contradictory. And also is meant to just make you feel bad Like and does nothing for you other than that. Like Seriously. And the guy's like whole statement where he says, as a Catholic, I have great respect for my Jewish brethren. That gets washed away by like the rest of it entirely. I was so judicial in writing that email, but I wanted to write like, as an historian, I know that to be not true. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? You think I don't know my own people's history, even on a basic level? Yeah. But it was a little fun today. I don't think that he's done with you yet, though, buddy. If you just sent that off, he's probably going to come back. <laughs> yeah.
Especially since I, I had to confirm with him the address of this guy, because it's not listed. He just says yeah. I have to send a hard copy to this guy, but gives me no address. Of course. Levi, sorry, real quick. Is that martini that you're drinking? Tell me that's just like a whole bunch of olives and some olive brine and vodka. Uh, I don't know if it's vodka or gin, but it's oh, also okay. got hot sauce in there. Oh, hell yeah, dude. That's such a great idea. Hot and dirty. That's like how I make a martini. I just pour a bunch of vodka in a glass, five or six olives, and then... I know, a good shot of the brine of the owls. And that's it. <laughs> My apostate, hell-driven wife made it for me. <laughs> Call that the witch's brew. All right, welcome to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Steve and Levi, and also we've got Mike from Turn Leftist. Mike, how you doing, buddy? How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to see you, man. Uh, we're back tonight with another entry in our Reading Mark series. Tonight, we're going to be covering chapters 12 through 14. So with that, Levi, I'll just turn it right over to you. In these chapters, Marx noted a few distinct traits of humanity inherent in capitalism, cooperation, alienation, and competition. Industrial capitalism brought human beings together in intimate cooperation to better exploit labor power. It's rather easy for Marx and the modern left to understand this cooperation, though coerced, arises from pre-capitalist grounds and can be used to a positive good. The ever more atomized division of labor, wherein each worker performs a smaller and smaller part of the whole in cooperation, exacerbates alienation, the detachment of meaning from work. Marx doesn't use the term alienation in these chapters, but he argued on page 484 that, unaddressed, this alienation might cause the deterioration of the great mass of the people. We've already spoken in previous episodes on the need for cooperation in organizing and on confronting alienation in work, but competition is new in this chapter. Marx argued its origins, its detriments, and its possible benefits are something between those of cooperation and alienation. Like cooperation, it's something capitalists claim their economic system generated, rather than seized upon. Like alienation, it's prone to deteriorating the public psyche by undermining our cooperative nature and exaggerating our alienation. Still, unlike alienation, I don't believe Marx argued competition caused deterioration. And, unlike cooperation, he doesn't seem to argue competition is among the gravediggers of capitalism. Competition rather appears as a force rife with contradiction in both theory and practice. Isaac Deutscher considered as much in his 1952 piece, quote, Socialist Competition. In the work, he probed the contradiction between the motivations of economic individualism built on competition and the socialist community built on cooperation. Without getting bogged down in his material history of the Soviet Union, I believe he touches on an important contradiction. Central to Deutscher's piece is a note within Marx's 1836 manuscript, The German Ideology, wherein Marx wrote the following, quote, Competition separates individuals from one another, not only the bourgeois, but still more the workers, in spite of the fact that it brings them together. Hence, it is a long time before these individuals can unite. In this chapter, Marx detailed how the coercive laws of competition forced the bourgeois to strive for ever greater efficiency an effort to capture ephemeral profit windfalls. But he also pointed 
to the competition between workers over resources to maintain and reproduce their own labor power. Both become monstrous, alienated creatures with each step, I would argue, due to this competition. Marx's quote from the German ideology continued, quote, Hence, every organized power standing over against these isolated individuals who live in relationships daily reproducing this isolation can only be overcome after long struggles. To demand the opposite would be tantamount to demanding that competition should not exist in this definite epoch of history, but that the individuals should banish from their minds relationships over which, in their isolation, they have no control. Competition, both between and among the bourgeoisie and the worker, is thus a force which capitalism seizes upon and transforms, like cooperation, to the service of profit maximization. But it is also a force which must be transformed over a long class struggle. But transformed into what? What role then does cooperation, alienation, and competition play in agitation and organizing? How do these forces function in a socialist future? I'm Levi. So we can go around and give some immediate thoughts on the role of competition in organizing and agitation before we dive into the text of Marx's Capital, Volume 1, Chapters 12 through 14. To think about competition in the positive sense, because I do think it is something that's very natural to humans, right, to be competitive, but I don't think it has to be negative. You can have good-natured competition. That's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. I mean, I think about even what we're doing, right, in the realm of agitation. It's like, we all want to make a good podcast. We want to put out good content. And we have respect for people that do the same, you know what I mean, that are trying to agitate and organize. And like, we'll pat people on the back when they do it. But that doesn't mean that I don't look at Nat's podcast sometime and I'm like, God damn, I want to get that good. You know, and <laughs> like, that, is, that is the spirit of competition. Very jealous of Nat. Very yeah, jealous exactly. of value, dude. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So, I mean, in a positive sense that and then just from an organizing perspective because i think these things you know go hand in hand where they can you know you want to out organize your local trotskyist organization and build people you know bring people along to your side of the working class of uh, struggle not that you know what they're doing is necessarily or inherently bad or anything because again they're organizing against capitalism which right now we need more and more of that i really don't care where it comes from but you know if you've got competitive organizations in a given geography I mean, you are really competing with each other for the hearts and minds of the masses. And I don't think in this context right now, that's necessarily a bad thing that more and more people are like agitating and trying to bring people around by essentially trying to do it better than other socialists. One of your points, Nick, I don't think it's bad to have competition, but it's a whole other thing to have someone's survival depend on the competition. Right. Like we don't have to have people's uh, basic needs commodified and then tie that to their competition in the market. That's just purely inhuman. And when it comes down to competition where lives are at stake, I think people generally are revolted by that. Like people don't think highly of war or mortal battles of any kind. When people like fight to the death, that's considered barbaric for good reason. Capitalism is barbaric by its very nature in that respect. And I think there's something to be said for what it turns both the laborers and their slave owners or their employers into. It makes them into grotesque people. It is a grotesque position to be in, to be enslaved and to be dehumanized that way, and then to be the, the person who is enslaving others, even if it is just wage slavery. 
I don't think I have to describe like the the difference in mindset between people who are working class, genuinely proletarian, and earn their living through their hard labor, and then the people who employ them and are so disconnected from that. It's like when they have conversations, they can't even empathize with each other at all. And it usually ends up with the worker being disgusted by that wealthy person because they see the the things that they have to do to maintain their position of power and then the logical leaps they have to make to justify it, which are so obvious to everyone else. But they will still entertain those delusions in their mind. It's that thing they always say about not getting a man to understand something when his salary depends on it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's very obvious. And then, of course, those employers and those wealthy people feel themselves disgusted at at the others, like even though they did literally depend on their labor for their own position, they find themselves disgusted by those other people because they have to. Like it's a it's a psychological thing that they kind of have to do. I bet Lacan talks about it. <laughs> it is very. I mean, you can see the alienation in that respect, and it's very apparent. And the worse things get, the more and more I guess extreme the situations become. And you saw like this goes back to Occupy Wall Street when you see the memes of like people on skyscrapers or like their verandas on Wall Street, like looking down at the Occupy protesters and just drinking champagne and being obviously disgusted by those people. Yeah, it's gross. It's really gross. Yeah, I keep my politics very much to myself in, in my job. Most people we encounter on a day-to-day basis are, are capitalists and wherever, wherever they are in the or hierarchy. Identify, identify as capitalists yeah. mistakenly, yeah. right? <laughs> and wherever they are in a hierarchy of a company, right? Their natural inclination is that you want to be promoted and you want to become a manager and then become a director or a VP or whatever. They, they just expect that everybody wants to progress and they're constantly putting you in competition with your colleagues who may also be your friends. I, I've had conversations with, you know, my bosses and they're, they're always like, well, you know, for you to make the next step, this is your competition. And these are like my direct colleagues who I work with on a day-to-day basis and many of whom I consider friends. And I'm like, it puts you at, at odds with people you should be cooperating with to go to another thing we'll talk about. And also it just puts you at odds with someone that could be your comrade. Companies and, and anything in the, in the capitalist system is, is always looking to put you against your fellow worker or your potential comrade. I mean, just broadly, though, I think we're talking about human nature as it manifests in capitalism is kind of being taken for granted as this immutable historical force. And I think if you applied these same instincts of humanity in a more positive social system, they could be harnessed for good. And I think Marx is arguing that and a lot of these things. I would say as we get into it, I don't know that he's even very explicit about it. He definitely sees it as an important force, but it just doesn't seem like he has a very clear concept of what to do with it. And it's kind of funny because I couldn't find that many theorists actually talking about social competition. That's why I had to go with this relatively obscure sociologist in the 50s to find anything about it. But I have a bit more of a negative sense of competition on just a gut level. I don't know everybody's background here, but I almost always despised competitive sports and how quickly friendly competition turned to vicious competition. Mm-hmm. I even specifically remember certain friends telling me like, oh, we can play ultimate frisbee. It's not going to be vicious competition. It's just good fun. And I literally just walked away from the field after somebody called me, uh, I'm not going to use the word, but it begins with an F and ends with a T. Like, this isn't friendly competition. And it very quickly becomes unfriendly competition. Aside from that, 
The competition that comes to my mind in terms of agitation and organizing is less the competition with Trotskyists and more the competition with more conservative forces. It's easy for conservative movements, even those towards so-called social democracy, to promise benefits at the expense of the other. They use competition to make it seem okay that you're benefiting, because you're just better. You're a white man living in the metropole. You've earned it. Those others, they just aren't as good. You and your union earned your benefits over those part-timers, and they're trying to take it away from you. Do you really want to organize with them? Why don't you just take care of yourself? That's the kind of competition that really bothers me, and I think it's really easy to see people slip into it. Just like these friendly sports can really turn vicious at the drop of a hat as soon as you realize that guy is really keeping score. So I guess with that, we can get into it. So on page 436, Marx returned to the, quote, coercive law of competition from pages before by writing, quote, the law of determination of value by labor time makes itself felt to the individual capitalist who applies the new method of production by compelling him to sell his goods under their social value. The same law, acting as a coercive law of competition, forces his competitors to adopt the new method, end quote. Therefore, technological developments which allow the capitalist to create twice as many commodities in the same amount of time thus allows for greater relative surplus value, at least for a time. Marx made this even more explicit from page 436 to 437, quote, Capital, therefore, has an imminent drive and a constant tendency towards increasing the productivity of labor in order to cheapen commodities and, by cheapening commodities, to cheapen the worker himself, end quote. While a lot of this appears rather intuitive, it makes me wonder how much of this cycle is truly coercive. Rather than cheapen the worker in the end, isn't it possible to imagine the worker gaining material comforts at a similar rate the capitalist enriches themselves? Doesn't this describe the trajectory of successful social democracies? Put another way, will the, quote, coercive laws of competition always lead to cheapening the worker? How many times have you guys heard this argument or similar from, quote unquote, capitalists? where they think that it's not necessarily or inherently unethical or exploitative, and they will pick some kind of particular scenario, usually an idealized vision of a small business that doesn't actually exist anywhere, and describe how that business could theoretically operate ethically and pay all their employees fairly for their time and source all their materials ethically in some way, which, again, usually not possible when you're talking about raw materials in this country. I always just find it really funny that they have to make up scenarios and stick to particulars rather than talking about the principles at work here, which is why we always tell people to read theory and mm -hmm. actually understand the principles of the system that they claim to espouse. And that's really what it comes down to. It's like, even if you have the so-called ethical mom and pop hardware store, they're still going to have to, at some point, do something to expand. And if they don't, they will go out of business, be bought up by someone else. They will lose because that is what markets do. And it's like, the same people who espouse the achievements and all the benefits of competition and expansion and all these things deny those same principles when the rubber meets the road, like when their ideology gets off of the book and into the real world. It's almost like capitalism sounds great in theory, but doesn't really work in, in, in reality. <laughs> I mean, that's a great point. And on an even broader scale, I mean, because Levi, you mentioned the I guess, anticipated trajectory of social democratic nations, right? But we can look at inequality as measured in what, I guess, a lot of people would consider successful 
social democratic nations. I mean, that would usually exclude some kind of analysis of imperialism and that, but like, let's just leave it there for now. But even in these cases, you know, there's this statistical measure called the Gini coefficient, and I don't know everything that goes into it, but essentially it is kind of inequality in a society distilled down to one number. And you can see, I think I was looking into some, I don't know if it was a UN study. There was some study I posted in the chat, but even over the period, basically like the neoliberal era kind of terminating as this study did in like 2016, in all of these successful social democratic projects that like the Bernie movement would look to, the Gini coefficients had risen. Maybe not as high, maybe not as rapidly as in other places, but Denmark, Finland, Sweden, all these places saw a rise of inequality. So again, Mike, to your point, like if you're not understanding the fundamentals at play and that capitalism is at its foundation exploitative and you don't uproot that, any gains can always be clawed back. And I think we're seeing that manifest itself in Europe, Levi, as we've talked about a lot in this podcast about the resurgent right and the attacks on what social democracy, social safety nets that have been built there, obviously on the backs of Africa and the global south and all that. But even that's not safe because the poison hasn't been completely eradicated. It's funny because it arose from both directions too. Like if you go to any reactionary spaces and see what they say about the Scandinavian utopias that Americans think of like, you know, all the Scandinavian countries to be, it is nothing but racism. Like those countries are turning fascist just like the, the US and the UK are because even if their decline is slower and it's not felt as strongly by the people there, it's still happening and they're going to be just as jilted by it as anyone else. Even if again, because it's all relative, even if it would look like a paradise to people here in the U S and not only is it working in that way, because the inequality is still increasing in those countries, the social safety nets are being eroded, but people in African countries that realize they're being exploited are rising up as well. So even the social safety nets and the grounding that those are built on foundation is going to fall off from under them, usually by force. There's going to be another Ibrahim Chorori in some other country like that the Absolutely. other Scandinavian countries are pulling their resources from. So, again, it just makes more sense to build up win-win relationships both within your colony and without. It just makes more sense if you actually want stability rather than just, uh, that's the whole thing. They don't want stability. It's literally just run by oligarchs and fucking mad psychopaths, like just mad narcissists for short-term profit and nothing else. And since we're talking about kind of rolling back societal benefits that workers have won. And we're doing a series on the New Deal. I think just in the American context, what is NAFTA in the neoliberal era, but the coercive laws of competition in a capitalist context, essentially breaking through its restraints. The coercive law of competition is forcing in many ways, again, and I want to be clear, people are making these decisions, but again, there's these people that embrace the idea of being capital personified. And then once those governors are kind of broken off, the coercive laws of competition allow them to go and seek cheap labor in imperialized, neo-colonized nations. That's entirely the project to roll back what the New Deal won for people. We're already getting to this point, but even in the example that you gave at the beginning, Nick, you said to set aside imperialism. So let's not set it aside. And in fact, let's bring in the environmental costs, which Mike mentioned. Even if the Bernie Sanders administration is able to increase wages and we still have growth at a lower level than before, things still don't look good in the global south. This gets to my point that it would still be an American Scandinavian paradise against an exploited global south. 
It might even lead President Sanders to intervene in Nigeria to make sure we have access to those rare earth minerals so we have our affordable batteries. This doesn't look good. But how do we convince people to go beyond the Scandinavian model, to think on a global level about what socialism or what the world should actually look like? I don't know how much you guys get involved with any of this stuff, but I mean, isn't a way that the corporations are trying to do kind of what you were talking about, Levi, through all these new ESG methods, you know, environmental sustainability and governance. And it's just a way to make themselves look better. And basically most countries are just finding and most corporations find ways to work around it um, and not really work towards what the essence of what ESG was, I, I guess, probably supposed to be originally, but it's just kind of another kind of neoliberal term that they use to try and show that they're trying to make the world a better place. And it's, a, it's another way that companies are going to be able to say, well, we're following these, this ESG thing, and therefore we're going to have to increase prices. And it just, again, kind of cheapens the worker, as, as, as Mark said, and as you highlighted. And the other thing I had on here about cheapening workers was, you know, outsourcing. And I mean, just look at like, again, exploiting the global South to produce iPhones and they're still not cheapening those iPhones, are they? And again, that kind of goes towards monopolies, I guess. Steve, are you telling me that when these companies encountered these supposedly good environmental regulations that in spirit would totally crush their profits because the implications of what they're doing and the pollution and the externalities that it causes would cut into the profits so much that their business model would no longer work so that they were able to influence the letter of the law to the point where it does nothing at all except continue to exploit consumers and pass the buck to the customer and charge higher prices and still devalue everything. It's almost like there's some underlying principle at work that they weren't really addressing. It's crazy. Right. They're turning kids into slaves just to make cheaper sneakers. But what's the real cost? Cause the sneakers don't seem that much cheaper. Why we still paying so much for sneakers when you got them made by little slave kids? What are you over here? But Levi, to go back to your point a little bit, because I think you asked about, all right, so like, let's take imperialism into account. And then how do we get people to see what imperialism is, you know, essentially forging? Yeah, that they're able to use this language of the social democracy where we can have something good here, but the implicit argument is we can have it here because we've achieved something. The other places aren't able to have that in the global south because they haven't achieved the level that we have. It's not an easy answer. And it's something that I try to do with a lot of like family and friends. And it really amounts to agitating with an eye towards trying to build working class solidarity on an international scale. And that sounds like very hard. And it is, right? Because like if you talk about the benefits that Americans and Europeans are yielded through these systems kind of vaguely, it's hard to get people to like fight against it. I think you really have to double down on people's emotions sometimes and talk about the travesties that are inflicted upon these people to maintain this system. And it's a tough thing to do in terms of threading the arc between like, this is why the US coups Guatemala. This is why they bomb Libya. This is why they're threatening Niger and all of these Sahel countries right now. Um, and this is going to be the result. And I think you have to get people to see the devastation a little bit and really empathize on a human level to get them to that point where they're actually making that connection. Then really at the end of the day, like you have to kind of trust people to 
take the initiative to do a little bit of investigation on their own. It's very hard to just convince people solely through agitation in a conversation or listening to a single podcast for them to really understand that like, hey, like these things are all tied together. And all I can say is that I look at it as we're all trying to do our part a little bit. We just need more people doing their part. And maybe if you can affect one person, they affect another person and it kind of cascades from there and it builds that way. It was so good. I told two friends about it and they told two friends and so on and so on and so on. And believe me, there's still nothing like the original. You can't do it all on your own. Everybody's trying to do a little bit. I mean, that's that's what this is all about. Yeah. Re-education. <laughs> yeah, re-education. Yeah, but we, so have to, we have to get power through all this stuff to, in order to re-educate people. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just daydream. I just daydream a lot. <laughs> oh, daydreaming is uh, one of the few things we have, you know? You can always smile. But I think to build off of something that Steve was talking about and sort of connecting it more concretely into what we're talking about here, and I, I kind of wish I remember where this came from, but it was these two talking heads. Uh, one claiming to be from the left, one claiming to be from the right. They were talking about, I think it was DeSantis, withdrawing the state pensions from Bud Light or something stupid. The left-wing person said DeSantis wouldn't do this if it was a right-wing company. And the guy on the right agreed, but he added, First of all, there is no such thing as a conservative company anymore, at least in terms like I, I don't think I exist, at least in I like wildly um, disagree okay, with that. Union, if you look at the union busting and you look at the lobbying on tax legislation, maybe on the surface level, to the maybe on the surface yeah. level, cultural stuff. Yes. Yeah. But in terms of how they actually operate in America and the effect they have, it is definitely conservative. I, I don't disagree. But then, I mean, by that definition, like Amazon is a conservative company. I agree right? with that. Well, 100 percent. I agree with that. We are looking at the actual <laughs> metrics. We're not talking about the way it codes. Slapping Black Lives Matter on your website does not make you a left-leaning company. That's just capitalism. All companies do that. By that definition, (laughs) all companies are right-wing. And her answer was, that's my point. (laughs) Mind blown. (laughs) And I think that gets to what I think Steve was talking about and what I'm getting at is these companies aren't going to do it on their own. None of them are actually going to be left-wing companies, no matter how much offsetting they do, how much they donate to trans lives how much they donate to Black Lives Matter. Not that that stuff doesn't matter at all. It's better than the otherwise, but it's not that much better. It's not structurally changing anything. Conservatives would do well to internalize the point that corporations do not do activism. They do marketing. But I think like it dismantles their entire worldview of the entire culture of war is dismantled with that one sentence. It really comes down to that. And they literally cannot understand it because like any other point, any other simple fact that dismantles their bias, they refuse to understand it. Use the term conservative in your statement there, but it's really conservative and liberals. Oh, yeah, just they're both arguing on the same. Yeah. I mean, they're all liberals, bro. We know this. Come on. Yeah. I used that example in real life once, Mike. I was at like this work event and, you know, there was like a happy hour after it. And it was people from all these different companies and shit. And I was sitting there talking to this one guy and, it was fine. You know, we were talking about growing up in like rural areas and all that kind of shit. So I was kind of like on the edge of my seat a little bit, you know, but like the guy seemed friendly enough and he went to order a beer and he's like, well, I can't order in a fucking Bud Light. I was like, okay, here we fucking go. Here we fucking go. I'm not losing my mind because I can't really in this setting, you know, but then I dropped that line on him and he just kind of like looked at me like kind of dumbfounded and I just got up and walked away, but it was like, it didn't compute. They're just doing marketing. You know, they're not woke corporations in the sense that they're anything but what they actually are. 
and what they exist to do, which is to make money. To pull Marx back into this. So on page 438, it contains a very nice little summary of the entire chapter's argument without any math. And this is another chapter that has a lot of math in it, unfortunately. Quote, The objective of the development of the productivity of labor within the context of capitalist production is the shortening of that part of the working day which the worker must work for himself and the lengthening thereby of the other part of the day in which he is free to work for nothing for the capitalist. End quote. What strikes me is just how implicitly limited Marx prescribed the agency of the capitalist, the state, and the worker through the coercive laws of competition. As mentioned in the previous episode on the working day, how many capitalists are actually reformers who might want to share the benefits of their wealth, albeit extremely paternalistically, with the working class? How many members of the working class would be happy to get these reforms, embrace competition with their fellow worker, and thus hesitate to support radical unions or revolutionary movements for the sake of having libraries, cheaper schools, you know, more benefits given to them by the current Andrew Carnegie's of the world? In the end, does Marx undervalue the agency of both the capitalists and the working class to change these situations to mediate each other? Because back in the day, these robber barons actually knew they had to give something back to the people they were robbing from. I think a big portion of this comes down to, I can't not say it in the Zizek voice, but ideology. Ideology. Like, it really just is the mindset that people are willing to accept at any given time and place in history. And it blows my mind just how widespread it can be and what people are willing to accept only because everyone else around them is accepting it. And it's kind of my whole point of what I was thinking about going into this tonight is like, all of this is human decided. And I feel like people have so much difficulty imagining better conditions, even imagining the conditions that U.S. workers were in a few decades ago in this very country. Again, if even was still on the backs of some more exploited people, but they refuse to believe that it could be better here or even that it is better in other places. Don't even get me started on China. People refuse to believe it. And I don't think it's all racism or xenophobia or anything like that. I think a lot of it is simply just that they're so ideologically brainwashed. They cannot imagine anything better. And so all of this human-made system that is totally propped up by human labor and could be stopped at any time, they assume it is natural. And all these things that we're talking about tonight, where Marx is talking about these things and how they operate, that is under capitalism. It doesn't have to be this way. It definitely can be other ways, and people direct those things. I've made the mistake of saying on my show a bunch of times that something to the effect of communism being inevitable, just that capitalism will inevitably lead to its own collapse because it is so contradictory and so inherently unstable. But the truth is that you could descend into fascism, you could go back into feudalism, just as easily as you can move forward into socialism or progress into some better state of being, it's not inevitable. And you can cycle through these states of society as many times as you want. It's a crucial thing to understand. and It can be definitely disheartening. So you mentioned the brainwashing of the working class. And Marx himself appears to diminish the ability of the working class to act or conceive of its own revolutionary future when he writes on 484. And this is jumping ahead. Quote, some... Uh, here he uses the antiquated phrase, crippling of the body and mind is inseparable even from the division of labor in society as a whole. However, since manufacture carries this social separation of branches of labor much further, and also by its peculiar division attacks the individual at the very root of his life, it is the first system to provide the materials and impetus 
for industrial pathology. Marx dances on the edge of a knife here. He wants to argue that capitalism is horribly dehumanizing and limits the possibility of thought and action through fierce, debilitating competition. Yet he also wants to argue that within these limits, the working class brought together in the factory under cooperation will come to realize their own power and overthrow capitalism on their own. It's a hard balance, because we are all familiar with the mental and physical pains of a long day at work and might imagine those pains intensified in the factory which Marx described. But it's so condescending to state that the oppressed are thus psychologically inferior because of their circumstances under which they make their own history. And industrial pathology is such a great term. I love that. Maybe we can talk about whether he intends to be condescending or not, or whether he's just commenting on like a reality that he is observing. All I can say is that this is why I'm a Leninist. Because I do think without some kind of organization that can help help pull people out of this a little bit, because only, we're only going to get out of it through organization and working together and helping each other out of these situations where we're beat down every day, right? But I think this is why I believe in Marxism-Leninism, because Marxism kind of like lays down the theory of how things happen, and then Lenin kind of puts like the practical organizational elements down that formulate how you would respond to these situations. And this is just what's proven out through history. I mean, I do think that this goes into this idea that we do see spontaneous uprisings of the working class fighting against these conditions. Absolutely. We see labor union consciousness. We see labor union organization. But I think, again, this is why I kind of settled on Leninism, because that's what helps you take it to the next step. I don't think about it condescendingly. It's just that we need to be organized to fight against it. And we need some kind of basis upon which to build that consciousness and help each other out. Sort of state what you stated in different words. We, as the working class, are helped by our cooperation, by these situations that were brought into by capitalism. The working class comes together, and they have the time to build and nurture a shared culture, a shared group of ideas, a radical notion of building a new system. At the same time, I'd argue there's a very strong appeal to competition, of othering, that keeps the working class, keeps people like us down. We see the people around us that we should have more in common with, and we think of them as other. We think of them as not quite believing the right thing. We're not building a shared culture. We're not building a shared political imagination. So that really gets me back to the core issue that I'm thinking about in these readings. What is the purpose of competition? Isn't it really about cooperation? And can we have cooperation with competition? Is there really even a place for it? Maybe you and I differ on this. I think that competition can be harnessed for good. So the way I would look at it is one competing to be like the best organizer in your organization that you can possibly be loving your comrades and working with them, but still like being driven in the sense that I've been made responsible for kind of bringing all this together. I'm going to do it to the best that I can. And I think there is a competitive aspect to that. And then I also like your framing from the beginning where when I was coming at it from that more positive side, let's fucking compete against the capitalists. You know, like, let's like, let's all come together and compete against them. I almost want to say that cooperation should be the countervailing force in the dialectic against competition. But it just feels on some level like a like a Reddit Trotskyist thing to say. I don't know why it feels like that. Like, I don't know what Reddit Trotskyists say, but like, it just feels dorky to me to say it that way. But like, 
It does kind of feel like the more a society relies on competition and individualization and alienation, the more out of balance it gets and the worse it gets for everyone in their conditions. And then if you actually have cooperation in the form of unions and strong worker organizations to to balance that out, to literally just push back against that, you have a better society overall. Yeah, I think what makes this feel rather weird or reddity is just how basic these concepts really are. The, the notion of competition, cooperation, and alienation. I mean, these are really base concepts. We can even talk about them in terms of human nature, which is a pretty dangerous thing for Marxists to talk about, that it's ahistorical, or very quickly gets into ahistorical arguments or amaterial. An obvious thing to go to with competition is sports. People have been coming up with different sports to play for a long, long time under various different modes of production. There has to be something there that leads people to (laughs) this feeling that they want to kind of compete. And I I think Marx uses the words like animal spirits a little bit, right? But I mean, think about like lacrosse is like an ancient sport, you know? (laughs) Maybe I'm getting a little bit far afield here, but I think there is something. What also really bugs me about my own stupid analogy <laughs> about cooperation and ca- competition balancing each other out. Like it's, what was, it makes me think of like the old fucking, oh, you need the strong left and the strong right wing. And they had like the two books leaning up against each other as if they have to balance each other out. Like Ugh. all of politics and society are a triangle. <laughs> it's like, go fuck yourself, first of all. But I just can't imagine too much cooperation. Like, what does it look like when the balance shifts too far on the side of cooperation and everyone just cooperates and gets along? You have, like, a horizontal society. It's like, oh, oh no, God forbid. Like, it's fine. Like, <laughs> Hello, Mike. That's when China invades. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's called appeasement. No, I completely agree. I don't think there is such a thing as too much cooperation in a society. But we can very clearly see how too much competition could be incredibly dangerous. And that, I think, is... To my point, I I just, I can't see where the sort of difference between healthy and unhealthy competition comes together. And in the end, we, maybe we don't need to have a theory on competition. Maybe we'll know it when we see it, when it's too much. And I think to Nick's point, I, I think that might be why Marx doesn't focus too much on the limits of competition. But to go to a point that he raised about the animal spirits, in the popular imagination, you get a characterization of Marx as anti-individualist, one that is more or less on display on page 447, where he wrote, quote, When the worker cooperates in a planned way with others, he strips off the fetters of his individuality and develops the capacities of his species. But on the same page, he argued this collective power is sparked by, quote, rivalry between individuals, which, quote, raises their animal spirits. In the chapter on the division of labor manufacture, Marx reflected back and further clarified on page 481, quote, While simple cooperation leaves the mode of the individual's labor for the most part unchanged, manufacture thoroughly revolutionizes it and seizes labor power by its roots. It converts the worker into a monstrosity. There appears to be a contradiction here. Rush the individual because they are subsumed into the mass collective of the working class production line. But also, they compete against each other as individuals for their means of subsistence. The individual worker is torn between the poles of cooperation and competition, not to mention alienation, which results. 
Is there room for the individual within Marx's understanding of cooperation and the working class? More to the point, what is the role that, quote, rivalry between the individuals, which I read as meaning competition, in fostering anti-capitalist solidarity? Let's just look at an example of a socialist society, like the Soviet Union. They were obviously putting a lot of their workers' efforts towards building a new society outside of the boundaries of capitalism. And they had incentives for workers to contribute as much as they could for that. But that worker wasn't competing with the person next to him for his home, his food, his vacation time. That was all granted to everybody at a very baseline level. But I guess my point that I'm going to keep going back to is like, yes, like competition in the capitalist perspective or the capitalist context is very detrimental because it alienates and atomizes people to make everybody think that, yes, if I don't get this, then he might get it. But if we're all working towards the betterment of society, what if we all get it? And maybe I'll get a little bit extra vacation. I think there were incentives in the Soviet Union for like extra vacation days, you know, depending upon like the labor output and everything like that. If my working hard wasn't coming at the expense of the other guy, it was just something that I got and it was all going towards the betterment of society. So this might be a little bit of an idealized kind of description of what I'm talking about. But again, I think that those same kind of impulses, if they were harnessed in a different context, could lead to different results on a people to people basis. And it doesn't negate the individuality of people either, necessarily. Like whenever you hear, whether it be a liberal or a conservative, as, as Mike said, they're all pretty much, they're all the same. But when you argue for communism, they say it, it doesn't work. And the reason why is they say is greed of people, right? You could view that as, as some type of competition because they view it as the the leaders of the party had more than everybody else because they were greedy. You know, we would argue that's not the case and that that's not true, but I think they're viewing it from their own perspective of everybody wants to compete with everybody else to your point to alienate others. And therefore they use it in the sense of it's just the greed of these people to, to do better than, than their neighbor. And that's why communism will never work. But that's precisely the point is because we're, yeah. we can't, we're stuck imagining these same kind of principles in the context that we live in today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. To even consider what Oliver Stone wrote about when he was writing that great speech, where he says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. It's the argument that this competition is really what creates a better world. And it's embodied by that speech by Gordon Gecko. It's just that speech was meant to be a satire when Oliver <laughs> Stone wrote it. People thought that it was an actual argument to the benefit of capitalism, because if you take it out of that context, it is. That is the argument that Adam Smith, 
that all these classical economic liberals make with some small caveats. But as we said, it's easy to imagine competition destroying a society, whereas it's hard to imagine too much cooperation destroying a society. Yet that's not really what the culture focuses on, even on like a very basic media level. We don't have much about the valorization of cooperation because it, it just feels very obvious and stupid and icky. But we have constant reaffirmation of how great competition is. That just seems very strange to me, that it needs to be constantly reified. I really like Michael Parenti's version of the Gordon Gecko ideology, and uh, our friends over at the Cars and Comrades have it in their outro music, and it's when he says that... Uh, the free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interests and wealth accumulation will produce the best results for all of us <laughs> through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> and for people, you know, who always hear that in an audio format, in the great yellow speech, he's making the jerk-off motion with his hand when he says the invisible <laughs> hand, as he should be. And it, and it gets a great laugh when he does that because it's a great fucking joke, but... That literally is how much of a joke the free market ideology is. Believing that having all these ruthless capitalists exploiting people and that's going to somehow create a better society, it's like obviously not true. And it's not true even in all of human history. But that's why it's so constantly reaffirmed in the opposite direction because the ruling ideology is the ideology of the ruling classes. And all of the history and all of contemporary news is going to tell you that free markets and ruthless competition are actually providing better lifestyles for everyone, even if it may not seem apparent to you, even if it does seem like the Inflation Reduction Act and all the Bidenomics is helping you, it really is. Like It's very big brothery in that way, but yeah, once you actually start looking, looking into history, I'm sure you can tell us, Levi, like any gains that those workers got were fought and died for. We're talking about cooperation as kind of being like this woo-woo concept a little bit, but I think, you know, Marx is really talking about it fundamentally here, right? It's, and it's a process of capitalism to bring people under the same roof as he talks about to work together to build this product now because it's capitalism it alienates us but again in the same way that we're saying that cooperation is obviously not a bad thing even cooperation in the capitalist context as it relates to societal development as a whole i don't think marx would argue is a bad thing it's just that all of this organization within production needs to be harnessed to a different end, which I know I've been emphasizing where I think competition could be harnessed in a more positive way. But I think the way I'm looking at it still relies entirely upon this idea that cooperation is much more centered because, again, this person next to me that I may be competing with, quote unquote, to maybe, I don't know, work harder to build a better world, like to prevent a climate disaster or something like that. But that implies that we're also cooperating towards the same goal to bring in marx the historian uh, and unfortunately he's a bad historian in this quotation on page 452 through 453 marx provides a brief history of cooperation through time and space that goes back to quote beginning of human civilization among hunting peoples to argue quote the sporadic application of cooperation on large scale in ancient times in the middle ages and in modern colonies rests on direct relations of domination and servitude in most cases, 
on slavery. Well, David Wengrow and the late David Graeber, in their 2021 anthroarchaeological history, The Dawn of Everything, argued ancient human history is, in reality, much more diverse, with many cultures based on large-scale decentralization and democratic politics. In effect, they argue that Marx actually suffered from a narrative development in part by oppressors to delegitimize such societies as backward and primitive, as belonging in the dustpan of history. Does this reconception of history, one which argued for the agency of massive pre-capitalist cooperational, not based on domination and servitude, born from the competition of all against all, does this affect Marx's argument? Also feel free to challenge the premise of the question since Graeber and Wengro may have their own anarcho-political acts to grind in their work. I could definitely be misinterpreting the dawn of everything because I've only heard of it through people who read it and then talked about it on other podcasts. But the points that I've heard made from that book repeatedly were that in pre-capitalist formations of society, they would still amass surpluses and they would still have exploitation sometimes, but at least, I guess, because of the scale at hand, they were able to have these kind of events, whether they were festivals or some kind of jubilees or something, or even if they were like wars between different smaller scale nation states or whatever, they would have something that would liquidate that surplus, would undo all the amassing of wealth by these small wealth owning and just elites of the society at the time. And then the problem, I guess, described by, by Graeber and Wingrow is that once you get to this industrialized stage, it's spread out too far and the alienation becomes too nebulous for people to really pin down and then they can't organize effectively against it and it just reminds me of all the the same arguments that i always had with all those libertarian bros it's like when they talk about stateless societies every time they try to describe a a situation in which that worked they're not talking about at scale they're not talking about large economies the way we would think of countries today and i feel like any society or any ideology or any ideas you have about how to structure production and distribution shouldn't be taken seriously if you can't imagine them working at the scale that they would need to for modern times. I think that's part of it. That scale is a big sticking point that hurts the Graeber-Wingrow argument, at least as they want to articulate it. But I would actually say that there is something positive to what they're trying to claim about the nature of cooperation among humanity. Even if it's not naturally at scale, it does show that there are civilizations, there are cultures which developed far beyond Marx's knowledge at the time that actually depended on cooperation and depended on something that looked like, as we would recognize it, egalitarian democracy or something close to egalitarian democracy outside of this sort of, you know, hokey Greek situation that never actually existed. That we can have as human beings a vision of society where people are treated with respect and dignity and not as slaves. That of course there's some level of exploitation, but As we said in previous episodes, even in our socialist utopia, there's still ditch diggers. There's still people that are going to do work that they don't want to do. There's still going to be some level of exploitation, even in our wildest fantasies, outside of, you know, uh, electro-dominated future utopias, uh, whatever that ends up being. So, I would say that we could take Graeber, Wengrow, sort of shear it of their own political conclusions that I just simply don't agree with, their anarcho-communism. And think of it as sort of an addendum to Marx to say this even pushes further how important it is to focus on cooperation and not to come to this conclusion that competition, alienation, 
and extreme exploitation in the form of slavery is always natural. Because the fact is, it's not. There are plenty of histories that we know where slavery was not the center of society, where there was something like egalitarianism, even if it was never to scale. I don't even think that would go against what like Marx and Engels would say on that question very broadly. If we think back to Engels' much more limited work on anthropology, I think he was getting at the same kind of idea about what human nature could be. There is evidence of, of us in the past like cooperating together for the benefit of society. Family structures look different. Again, what exists today is not the universal truth of humanity. And I think Graeber got into it a little bit more with, uh, obviously, there's more at their disposal for analyzing the history of humanity from an anthropological perspective. But um, I think what they would suffer from, and Levi, you were already getting at this, was that you know, as they're writing about the history of these societies, and again, I've only read summaries and critiques of it and, you know, some positive reviews as well. But as we would expect, they suffer from focusing kind of upon the state and not the class struggle as kind of the context in which all these egalitarians were fighting. And to put a point on what I'm saying, I want to take what Wengrow and Graeber especially are arguing here and think about it in a cooperative sense. It's easy to critique and shut people down for not agreeing with you in wholesale, but they agree with us probably, you know, 90% of the way. Right. It's just that 10%, those conclusions that we just can't abide. And to be honest, the historians that I cite for many of our episodes, we don't agree with maybe half of their politics. And we say nicer things about their research than sometimes we say about Trotskyists or anarchists or any of these people, these really are people that are on our side 90% of the time, yet they get probably 50% of our vitriol. We really uh, got to work on that balance a little bit as organizers and agitators. When's the last time you guys saw online anybody doing like the fully automated luxury gay space communism thing? I'm like, I'm wondering if that has fallen out of favor in recent years or if it's just that I stopped hanging out in circles where I see like online anarchists anymore. <laughs> I think it's probably the second thing. <laughs> probably the second thing with the ban hammer. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> this is a conversation for a different episode. I hear you. And I think that there's a lot that we can set aside, especially in the current moment right now, where we need to be talking about popular fronts and everything. But I do think that question of the state is very, very important, but maybe it doesn't need to be determined at this moment right now. <laughs> Yeah, let, let's get to the point where we can make those decisions before exactly. we start hurting each other for it. Because that kind of competition really is unhealthy for the movement. Can, can we all get on the same side about fighting police brutality in our city? Let's do that right now. Honestly, anarchists, if you have some great ideas, I am all ears. Let's do it. Let's agitate. Let's organize together. And uh, I, I, I'm almost certain the same sentiment is on the other side of that argument. Levi, do you not think the Chaz was a great idea? Come on now. <laughs> Sorry, that was a, that's a low blow. Cut that one. <laughs> it's over my head anyway. I have no idea what you're talking about. Shows how successful it was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> talking about low blows. <laughs> yeah. Leaving all that in. Nobody, no fucking anarchists listen to this. Actually, you know what? <laughs> Never mind. A couple do, I know. We love you. You mentioned Engels in there, and I'd like to just latch on to the great mind that Engels really was and how he deserves way more credit. So Marx, again, dips into the broad strokes of history when he writes on page 471, quote, Within a family, and after further development within a tribe, there springs up naturally a division of labor caused by differences of sex and age 
and therefore based on a purely physiological foundation. So I really wish that Angles would have had a heavier hand in editing this portion, because even Angles knew at that time, this just is blatantly not true. Not a good look, bro. That the notion of the family and the structure of society is historical. It's not a... Nothing natural about it. Yeah, yeah. So whoops. One point against Marx on that one. This is why he needed angles. Also got some weird Orientalism on 479 that don't need to repeat. Just another proof positive that at the very best, he's a man of his time. Uh, So feel free to go back to our episode on chapters four through six, where we explicitly talk about that. I don't know that we need to rehab. And Engels Engels wasn't perfect either, right? I mean, they were all just trying to get better, as we all are. We're trying. At the end of the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels wrote, quote, What the bourgeoisie therefore produces, above all, are its own gravediggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. And on page 449 of Capital, Marx gets to a similar point. Quote, As the number of cooperating workers increases, so too does their resistance to the domination of capital, and necessarily the pressure put on by capital to overcome this resistance. Marx here complicated the argument of inevitability he and Engels made in their earlier pamphlet by digging into the counter-revolutionary resistance capitalists built into capitalism. The capitalists hired, Marx wrote on the following page, quote, an industrial army of workers under their command, like a real army, officers, managers, and NCOs, foremen, overseers, who command during the labor process in the name of capital. These managers are still with us, but I'd argue capitalism's greatest counter-revolutionary actions have been in the concessions of social democracies, and more recently, the devastating embrace of individualization, alienation, and competition which comes through the gig economy. How do we square this new form of labor under Marx's theories developed here? Like I sometimes suspect that employers, like really vicious entrepreneurs, read Marx. Like they read Das Kapital and really interpreted it uh, for the worst possible reasons because it seems like they follow it as an instruction manual. When there are laws made, you just have to invent a new paradigm to skirt those regulations and find a way to exploit labor. And that's where all the union busting comes from. That's where all the gig economy comes from, which is like, oh, no, once we make it an app, that job is no longer the job that it was labeled before and is no longer subject to the very obvious regulation that it should be for the people who are doing that work. And whether it's actors, whether it's cab drivers, whether it's food deliverers or anything, it's, the principle is always the same. It, it just keeps coming back to the underlying principles are unavoidable and inescapable. There's a lot to unpack here, and I'm thinking about this in my own personal, professional life. I work basically hybrid. I can go into the office sometimes, and I can work from home sometimes, and other times I'm on the road traveling. So I think in the sense that we're still cooperating in the capitalist context, that still does exist. And it's almost like detrimental in this case, because I'm always connected to my coworkers through various communication boards like Microsoft Teams or like emails on my phone and everything. So I'm always forced to cooperate with <laughs> my my colleagues at some level. And I can't disconnect from it either because it's always there. It's like if I take that work home, I have to like actively be like, okay, I'm not doing this. And I do that a lot. But again, like it's another kind of tendril put into it. And while at the same time, 
I think it's good that some workers, such as myself, I'm lucky that I don't have to always spend every day commuting for, you know, an hour in traffic, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that's also kind of like privileged at some level to, you know, because yeah, white boy. yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> being very careful with my language here. Right. So don't come, don't fucking come at me. Um, but uh, I also see while I get, you know, there's that benefit of not having to go in all the time. I think this remote work in my particular case can actually be detrimental when it comes to potentially organizing a union or anything like that, because I think it limits some of the connections that can be made in, you know, a setting where you're interacting with, you know, fellow workers every day. So it's tough, but you know, it's the age we live in. And I think we have to think about these things. Just to add another layer, as it's already coming up in conversation, Mark lays out a relatively complex interpretation of geography and communication on page 473, when he wrote, quote, a relatively thinly populated country with well-developed means of communication has a denser population than a more numerously populated country with badly developed means of communication. In this sense, the northern states of the USA, for instance, are more thickly populated than India. The claim on India's side, I take that Marx was correct that the speed of communication and transportation does a lot of the work in shrinking the metaphorical geography of our relationships, something that Nick was just talking about. Right now, we're recording this from at least four different locations in the United States. We are hearing and seeing each other in real time, as though we're in the same room. This ties into the issue Marx grapples with in the previous chapter, something I asked with before. We're in a shared manufacturing space built solidarity, while now many can work in the same company from home, yet be in a literal sense, worlds apart. Going beyond work is something lost when so much of our daily lives depends on forms of communication that bring us closer while we are physically so far apart. How might this foster competition alienation rather than cooperation? This can be complicated even further when we consider who owns and monitors these lines of communication that bring us together but keep us apart. Like you were saying, Nick, Microsoft Teams and these emails that you're sending with your coworkers, everybody can see those. Whereas if you're sitting next to each other, you would assume what you're speaking about is in confidence. It takes away privacy on some level and individualizes us in a very strange way. Yeah. We may have to be careful as podcasters. I just heard on a podcast today that Zoom does this where they claim ownership over all the content that's recorded in Zoom. So if you record your podcast there, Zoom owns your podcast, sorry to, to if this is how you found out. But um, I'm sure Discord probably has something in the terms I say of We should look into somewhere. the Discord piece mm. as well, because yeah. <laughs> I doubt they're much better. If you post your document on Google Drive, Google now owns that document. Like, it doesn't matter what document you use to avoid it, unless you own your own file transfer system mm -hmm. you're going to be using servers you're going to be using software that's owned by a mega corporation that's going to own that information on some level even if it doesn't legally hold up can are, are you willing to sue and take this to the california supreme court in order to get your rights back to your information yeah while you were talking earlier leave i was thinking of sort of like a meme version of this take which is like imagine asking you know, your average liberal, by that I mean conservative, like a Republican, and ask them if just changing the name of something, just changing the definition of the term, changes the nature of something. 
And then ideally, if you just present a trans person as the example, and they will obviously say, no, of course not. You can't just say a man is a woman or vice versa just by changing the name of the thing. Even though what we are talking about is the sociologically created fiction of gender. But then ask them that same thing when it comes to a cab driver or like a skilled laborer and ask them if by changing the definition of that term of the job and moving it into an app, if we have changed the labor, if we have changed what that worker is worth and the profits they're creating. And of course, they will have to squirm. They will absolutely disagree in that sense. But in both senses, they are fictions that were created, especially if you claim to believe in like the ideology of individualism. When it comes to something like identity, wouldn't it make more sense to ask the individual at hand, like what their identity is, if you're going to talk about things like gender? Not that we are individualists or anything, but it just comes down to the fact that the material nature of something doesn't change. Like laborers are still doing the labor, no matter whether you pay them through an app and avoid all the regulations or not. There's two things I want to talk about in in relation to the question that you asked about, you know, how we communicate now and even taking it outside of the scope of work. Right. And so we touched upon like who owns all these things. Right. And I'm not advocating for being dumb online, but it's so pervasive now. Almost what choice do we have if we want to continue to do shit like this? Like we're kind of living in this connected world where, and I think there's positives and negatives of a lot of this stuff happening online for sure, which I'll get to in a second here. But I think at some level, you have to take some risks at some point you know what I mean, to continue to try to build the movement and build consciousness because everybody's connected at some level. I do think that the fact that a lot of this stuff happens both in the workplace and outside um, in terms of just communicating and interacting, while it's good that we can all be connected, it's bad. I've broken bread and had beers in person with all three of you guys. And I think that adds something to you know our relationship here. Whereas if we were just arguing in a comment section on Instagram, we may never have even like, you know, gotten past some of maybe our ideological differences, small though they may be, to actually sit down and do something like this. And I think there is a level of alienation that comes from just the idea of sitting behind a keyboard where you're not seeing that other person behind it. And it's almost like the concept of like fetishization that we've talked about, right? Like where the person behind this is kind of being obscured by all these other processes and implements in front of it, right? In the same way that we can't think about what goes into the human suffering that goes into the production of a commodity. It's like we almost need to try to rehumanize the person behind keyboard, you know? I think it's also really funny that the classical capitalists, the people that get, like, get revered, Going back to changing the nature of something just by changing the name, if like you think about the obvious example of like your capitalist industrialist entrepreneur, it's Henry Ford, who came up with the idea to really break down all the segments of a job into individual components and therefore bust apart the unions, de-skill the laborers themselves so that they couldn't justify demanding a, a valuable wage that would actually pay for their cost of living. And then even in a factory where people are probably closer together than they were before when it was one person doing a hundred different tasks instead of a hundred people doing one task, they could be right on top of each other, probably should be very comradely and still be competing against each other and very alienated and estranged from each other in that way. And I think it's also very telling that the new version of that is not even as good. It's not even as clever or as ingenious or as elegant as what Henry Ford was doing. They literally just start rent-seeking. They're just going to own your content that you were making on their platform. They're going to change, again, the name of the job rather than trying to actually do anything different to segment it or make it simpler so that everyone 
can do it without having to get some kind of education beforehand. Like they're still requiring all the onerous conditions before you can even get the employment. They're just taking more profits through ever increasing and just stupid ways that like people can see right through. And that's why they hate the gig economy so much. In spite of myself, I'm going to be referencing the classics. There is a dialogue of Plato where Socrates talks about the importance of conversation, of human contact, of expressive arguments to making a real point. Of course, we only know about this because Plato wrote it down. But because he wrote it down, he no longer owns it. How many college students have had to pay way too much money to read the dialogue? There is something lost when we lose the actual act of breaking bread, of seeing each other, of communicating. But there is also something gained by this ability to record, to distribute this information, to do this sort of agitation and education. Even though we might lose the rights to this, to Zoom, I mean... If they can monetize this and spread it around, you know, good on them. Hey, Good luck. Hey, let me like, know how, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're actively trying to do that and it's not please, working. So what are they going to do? Shit around. <laughs> please. But of course, I'm being glib here. There is something wrong with the fact that all of our major communication outlets are owned by huge corporations that are barely, if ever, monitored by the state. And when they are monitored by the state, they're monitored to our detriment. That's wrong. That's something bad. But there is something important about the collapsing of space. I mean, it's good that we could have somebody on this discussion today, right now, that lives in South Africa and could tell us about their lived experience as it relates to reading capital. There's something that we could learn from that. But at the same time, it's incredibly trouble that we have to have it over Discord, something that somebody else owns and monitors. To get rid of this stuff would be kind of reactionary. And I don't want to get into this whole idea of like, oh, everything is progressive, blah, 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 blah. And like, the, it's kind of like history is like this straight line of progress. It's not. But there's a lot of good that we can take. It just needs to be harnessed by people and not used against us. Like the fact that we can communicate with somebody in Australia or wherever is awesome. It's really fucking cool. Yeah, Jared's the shit, dude. Plug for Jared. <laughs> um, but just the idea that we have to worry about, Levi, as you're saying, like that, you know, the state could get access to these by just having a company hand any records to the state. Uh, it is very troubling, but it doesn't mean we need to, like, blow up the Internet. I think we may need to just put a pin in this because we'll have a more fruitful conversation on this issue when we talk about technology and its mm -hmm. use next episode. So pull us back to the text. Throughout part four of Capital, Marx wrote at length on suffocating structures of manufacture dictated by the coercive laws of capitalism. He wrote on page 477, quote, The same bourgeois consciousness which celebrates the division of labor in the workshop, the lifelong annexation of the worker to a partial operation, and his complete subjection to capital as an organization of labor that increase its productive power, denounces with equal vigor every conscious attempt to control and regulate the process of production socially as an inroad upon which sacred things as the rights of property, freedom, and the self-determining genius of the individual capitalist. At the risk of oversimplifying Marx, what was he arguing is the nature of a society or state established under the structure of the workshop? How would this alleviate concepts of alienation, atomization, isolation caused by individual competition? Could this rather be used as a means to argue for more worker co-ops or used as a warning 
against the bureaucratic stereotype of Stalinist Soviet Union. So this is the famous instance that can be summarized as the owners of the means of production complain that if you decide to regulate the social actions in the way that they regulate their factories, you'd be making a factory of the world. And that's kind of the point. Why is it that the factory can regulate and control so much, can have a dictatorship of the factory, yet we have to live in a world that's just so chaotic and unorganized? Have you ever seen a libertarian apply the something for thee, but not for me? And they never once apply that to their employers. Once you do that, you're being like a crybaby liberal who's just jealous and needs to work harder and bootstraps and all that shit. But they will always apply that to government. They love doing that shit. It's weird how it's like they just can't be consistent. It's strange. Yeah, it's the idea that many of these major corporations actually get together and create plans for distribution and plans for market. Yet they'll cry foul at even the hint of a union within their workplaces that are just trying to organize the same things from the perspective of the worker. That's what it was, Levi. You nailed it. The phrase was central planning for thee, but not for me. <laughs> and I think that gets to like another quote on that page, Levi, that you had highlighted because he talks about authority in the workshop and authority in society in relation to the division of labor are an inverse ratio to each other. And I think there's a more detailed quote on this in The Poverty of Philosophy, which is like an earlier Marx pamphlet. But he says here, it can even be laid down as a general rule that the less authority presides over the division of labor inside society, the more the division of labor develops inside the workshop and the more it is subjected there to the authority of a single person. Thus, authority in the workshop and authority in society in relation to the division of labor are an inverse ratio to each other. And just because we mentioned libertarianism, I think this is exactly like what they want to see. They want less broad-based societal input on how labor is divided and they want more just for the individual capitalist to dominate his realm within the sphere of production so the more libertarian principles that you have kind of flowing from the semblance of central government that remains allows for more domination of capital within the workshop itself that's how i think we're seeing what marx is talking about in terms of how this division of labor is forming within the workshop underneath a bourgeois state. It's just coming back to this idea that what we're talking about and what we're sort of limited in our thought process on is what does competition, what does cooperation, what does alienation look like under the capitalist system? Because as much as we want to imagine the rule of cooperation, the rule of competition in the next society, we really have a hard time just getting beyond the limits of the reality that we're in. We don't actually know what a state-regulated, fully-formed capitalist economy would look like. I mean, we have ideas of it, we have representations of it in imperfect forms like the Soviet Union, Cuba, etc. Communist society, you mean, sorry. Right, like actual lived socialism. But those instances don't really you can correct me on this they don't come from societies that have gone through the full development of capitalism before the installation of notions of socialism it makes it really hard to conceive of what that society would look like so it makes it even easier for capitalists to prey on that ambiguity and to posit that 
you know, what do you, you really want this to look like the Soviet Union where you stand in bread lines or make these false equivalencies where they'll say you really want to drive around in a car that you can barely maintain from 1960 like they do in Cuba. When the reality is like, no, I'd rather compare Cuba to somewhere like Haiti and see how they're really looking at each other and who's living the better life. But really, there's no equivalent to compare the United States to, at least I would argue at this moment, to say, what would it look like if the United States was a socialist country? Because I don't think that's the Soviet Union. As much as that rivalry was propped up during the Cold War, the Soviet Union, it had a lot of material things that was really going against it. Uh, on top of losing, what, 12 million people in a war to save Europe? 27, yeah. <laughs> 27 million, exactly. It really had the deck stacked against it in ways that the United States never had to deal with. Yeah, and that's where I think if you could actually get people to understand the context there, you could really get them to admire some of the accomplishments that were made in these contexts. And that's a tough thing to do. I guess just in terms of how this is all structured, I would just argue, I mean, look at Amazon. It's like we have all of these logistical networks, all these infrastructural networks already set up for us. If we could apply all those things for the benefit of people and make them less rapacious and destructive, we could still have a pretty good foundation upon which to build society because you're right, it would be an entirely different context. The U.S. does not need to go through any more industrial growth. The imperative on growth is done and it has to be done because of climate change. But again, the challenge is getting people to buy into that. If we continue this drive for unmitigated growth, it's going to fucking kill us. There is a Kurt Vonnegut book, unfortunately I'm not finding the name of it, wherein the central conflict is they're trying to find the owner of this corporation who has given the dictates that they just want their corporation to buy every single corporation that goes up for sale. The idea is that it's creating this sort of mega corporation that owns everything. So the reason this woman is doing it, it turns out, is that she was turned communist as a young age, even though she was the daughter of this incredibly wealthy baron. And her idea was, I'm going to create this corporation that buys up everything, becomes hyper aware of its ability to own the means of everything. And then when she dies, her will states, it will be donated to the state and the state therefore will have control over the entire economy. Of course, it's a Kurt Vonnegut book, so it ends. She dies, the state grabs it. And the state immediately sells it all back to the corporations at pennies on the dollar. Uh, yeah, that's perfect. The point being, and this will be better fleshed out next episode when we talk about technology, it's not just that the state is alienated from the means of production on some level or doesn't have that level of control. It's that there's no interest in the way that society is structured and the way that capitalism is structured to actually take care of that situation. They would just assume sell it for pennies on the dollar rather than provide a means of subsistence for their own people. I mean, this is Thatcher selling the estate homes. This is Reagan breaking the unions. They're going against the long-term interest of their society in order to make a short-term profit. Well, that's why the state is inseparable from the structure of the economy and how the economy is ordered. Because I mean, my question was going to be, well, what type of state was she selling it to? Was she selling it to a communist state or a capitalist mm -hmm. state? No, Nick, they all have the same motives anyways. All the same <laughs> They're shit. all bad. From my They're position here bad. in the West, having only known this one type of government, <laughs> let me just assert they are all the same. 
I'm against the state and uh, you know, welfare queen sucking off the tit of uh of uh what you what like hell yeah, Borther. Yeah, what the fuck, dude? Something about fudge rounds. Isn't that what's going around now? Yeah. Spending yeah. all their money on food. Yeah, but it's a it's a revolutionary anthem of the working class. Fudge rounds in a small town. <laughs> Come on. Hey, you know. Dollar ain't shit. And it's tax to no end. Calls the red man. Calls the red man. Fucking ridiculous. How do we wrap this up? How do we tie it all together here? So that's what I'm kind of struggling to do because this re- these really are transitional chapters. He doesn't yeah. make an incredibly solid argument one way or the other that allows us to state where we stand because these are questions that he doesn't provide a solution to. Mm-hmm. What is the role of competition in society? I don't think Marx really knew. And besides the German ideology, which I mentioned at the top, and that is a manuscript that was never published. I don't think he was even capable of conceiving of the role of competition in the future society. And that's left to us to imagine. And it's hard to imagine as we're sitting here in the metropole. I mean, I don't even think we necessarily have to spell it out. We talked about with Brett on our episode in the New Deal. There is an importance for us kind of putting out like a positive vision and speculating on some of these things. But I don't think we need to necessarily get it 100% right. We can't envision entirely how any kind of substantial change is going to unfold and how human behavior is going to kind of map out as a result. I think it's good that we can speculate upon it. I think, you know, cooperation is going to be absolutely fundamental. I think if there is such a thing as concrete human nature and human instincts, and again, I think that is very TBD and it's a dangerous conversation, I think there is still hope that some of the more negative aspects for that can be kind of harnessed and corrected in a more positive way if we're not all pitted against each other like fucking animals. I really think we've decided here that you cannot cooperate too much. Go out to your communities, organize, agitate, and say something nice about anarchists every once in a while. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to be to our benefit in the end. Amen. Let's leave it there for tonight. Thanks, Mike, for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. I remember thinking it was kind of uh, ironic. Yeah, we can actually go long tonight because I don't have to work in the morning. And ironic to think that about, you know, an episode on Das Kapital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever come underneath an hour and a half. And I think we're sticking with that tonight. So <laughs> thanks for joining, buddy. Thank you for listening. Um, as always, you can find us at Intervention Pod on Instagram. You can find Turn Leftist at Turn Leftist. And I think, Mike, you've still got the main one up right now, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The main, the main one's on good. On Instagram, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right now, I, mean, I feel like Instagram has gotten a little better now that like Biden's fully in office. And they don't feel like they have to be paranoid and like really lock down everything. So it's, it's kind of a good time right now. But now election season's getting around, so they're going to ban all the pages again. Just wait. It'll be coming. You know, check us out while you can. Shoot us an email. Leave us a review as long as it's positive, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. See you guys. Adios, paisanos. There it is.